Chapter Nine, Part B of Aaron's Rod by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, Part B. Low Watermark. It's done me harm," cried Aaron fretfully. "Send me to the hospital, or you'll repent it. Get rid of me in time." "Nay," said Lily. "You get better. Damn it! You're only one among a million." Again over Aaron's face went the ghastly grimace of self-repulsion. "'My soul's gone rotten,' he said. "'No,' said Lily, "'only toxin in the blood.' Next day the patient seemed worse, and the heart more irregular. He rested badly. So far Lily had got a fair night's rest. Now Aaron was not sleeping, and he seemed to struggle in the bed. "'Keep your courage up, man,' said the doctor sharply. "'You give way!' Aaron looked at him blackly, and did not answer. In the night Lily was up time after time. Aaron would slip down on his back and go semi-conscious, and then he would awake as if drowning, struggling to move, mentally shouting aloud, yet making no sound for some moments, mentally shouting in frenzy, but unable to stir or make a sound. When at last he got some sort of physical control, he cried, "'Lift me up! Lift me up!' Lily hurried and lifted him up, and he sat panting with a sobbing motion, his eyes gloomy and terrified more than ever like a criminal who was just being executed. He drank brandy, and was laid down on his side. "'Don't let me lie on my back,' he said, terrified. "'No, I won't,' said Lily. Aaron frowned curiously on his nurse. "'Mind you don't let me,' he said, exacting, and really terrified. "'No, I won't let you.' And now Lily was continually crossing over and pulling Aaron onto his side, whenever he found him slipped down on his back. In the morning the doctor was puzzled. Probably it was the toxin in the blood which poisoned the heart. There was no pneumonia, and yet Aaron was clearly growing worse. The doctor agreed to send in a nurse for the coming night. "'What's the matter with you, man?' he said sharply to his patient. "'You give way! You give way! Can't you pull yourself together?' But Aaron only became more gloomily withheld, retracting from life, and Lily began to be really troubled. He got a friend to sit with the patient in the afternoon, whilst he himself went out and arranged to sleep in Aaron's room, at his lodging. The next morning, when he came in, he found the patient lying as ever in a sort of heap in the bed. Nurse had had to lift him up and hold him up again, and now Aaron lay in a sort of semi-stupor of fear, frustrated anger, misery and self-repulsion, a sort of interlocked depression. The doctor frowned when he came. He talked with the nurse, and wrote another prescription. Then he drew Lily away to the door. "'What's the matter with the fellow?' he said. "'Can't you rouse his spirit? He seems to be sulking himself out of life. He'll drop out quite suddenly, you know, if he goes on like this. Can't you rouse him up?' "'I think it depresses him partly that his bowels won't work. It frightens him. He's never been ill in his life before,' said Lily. "'His bowels won't work if he lets all his spirit go.' like an animal dying of the sulks," said the doctor impatiently. He might go off quite suddenly, dead before you can turn around. Lily was properly troubled, yet he did not quite know what to do. It was early afternoon, and the sun was shining into the room. There were daffodils and anemones in a jar, and freesias and violets. Down below in the market were two stalls of golden and blue flowers, gay. "'The flowers are lovely in the spring sunshine,' said Lily. I wish I were in the country, don't you? As soon as you are better we'll go. It's been a terrible cold, wet spring, but now it's going to be nice. Do you like being in the country?" "'Yes,' said Aaron. 
He was thinking of his garden. He loved it. Never in his life had he been away from a garden before. "'Make haste and get better, and we'll go.' "'Where?' said Aaron. "'Hampshire? Or Berkshire? Or perhaps you'd like to go home. Would you?' Aaron lay still and did not answer. "'Perhaps you want to, and you don't want to,' said Lily. "'You can please yourself, anyhow.' There was no getting anything definite out of the sick man. His soul seemed stuck, as if it would not move. Suddenly Lily rose and went to the dressing-table. "'I'm going to rub you with oil,' he said. "'I'm going to rub you as mothers do their babies whose bowels don't work.' Aaron frowned slightly as he glanced at the dark, self-possessed face of the little man. "'What's the good of that?' he said irritably. "'I'd rather be left alone.' "'Then you won't be.' Quickly he uncovered the blond lower body of his patient, and began to rub the abdomen with oil, using a slow, rhythmic, circulating motion a sort of massage. For a long time he rubbed finely and steadily, then went over the whole of the lower body, mindless, as if in a sort of incantation. He rubbed every speck of the man's lower body, the abdomen, the buttocks, the thighs and knees, down to the feet, rubbed it all warm and glowing with camphorated oil, every bit of it, chafing the toes swiftly, till he was almost exhausted. Then Aaron was covered up again, and Lily sat down in fatigue to look at his patient. He saw a change. The spark had come back into the sick eyes, and the faint trace of a smile faintly luminous into the face. Aaron was regaining himself, but Lily said nothing. He watched his patient fall into a proper sleep. And he sat and watched him sleep, and he thought to himself, I wonder why I do it. I wonder why I bother with him. Jim ought to have taught me my lesson. As soon as this man's really better, he'll punch me in the wind, metaphorically if not actually, for having interfered with him. And Tanny would say he was quite right to do it. She says I want power over them. What if I do? They don't care how much power the mob has over them, the nation, Lloyd George and Northcliffe and the police and money. They'll yield themselves up to that sort of power quickly enough, and immolate themselves pro bono publico by the million. And what's the bonum publicum but a mob power? Why can't they submit to a bit of healthy individual authority? The fool would die without me, just as that fool Jim will die in hysterics one day. Why does he last so long? Tanny's the same. She does nothing really but resist me, my authority, or my influence, or just me. At the bottom of her heart she just blindly and persistently opposes me. God knows what it is she opposes, just me myself. She thinks I want her to submit to me. So I do, in a measure natural to our two selves. Somewhere she ought to submit to me. But they all prefer to kick against the pricks. Not that they get many pricks. I get them. Damn them all. Why don't I leave them alone? They only grin and feel triumphant when they've insulted one and punched one in the wind. This Aaron will do just the same. I like him, and he ought to like me. And he'll be another Jim. He will like me, if he can knock the wind out of me. A lot of little savrogens coming up to whisper affectionately, and biting one's ear. But anyhow, I can soon see the last of this chap, and him the last of all the rest. I'll be damned forever if I see their Jims and Roberts and Julias and Scots any more. Let them dance round their insipid hell-broth. Thin tack it is. There's a whole world besides this little gang of Europeans, except, dear God, that they've exterminated all the peoples worth knowing. I can't do with folk who team by the billion, like the Chinese and Japs and Orientals altogether. 
Only vermin teem by the billion. Higher types breed slower. I would have loved the Aztecs and the Red Indians. I know they hold the element in life which I am looking for. They had living pride. Not like the flea-bitten Asiatics. Even niggers are better than Asiatics, though they are wallowers, the American races, and the South Sea Islanders, the Marquesians, the Maori blood. That was the true blood. It wasn't frightened. All the rest are craven. Europeans, Asiatics, Africans, every one at his own individual quick craven and cringing. Only conceited in the mass, the mob. How I hate them. The mass bullies. The individual Judases. Well, if one will be a Jesus, he must expect his Judas. That's why Abraham Lincoln gets shot. A Jesus makes a Judas inevitable. A man should remain himself, not try to spread himself over humanity. He should pivot himself on his own pride. I suppose, really, I ought to have packed this Aaron off to the hospital. Instead of which, here I am, rubbing him with oil to rub the life into him. And I know he'll bite me like a warmed snake the moment he recovers. And Tanny will say, quite right, too. I shouldn't have been so intimate. No, I should have left it to mechanical doctors and nurses. So I should. Everything to its own. And Aaron belongs to this little system, and Jim is waiting to be psychoanalyzed, and Tanny is waiting for her own glorification. All right, Aaron, last time I break my bread for anybody, this is. So get better, my flautist, so that I can go away. It was easy for the Red Indians and the others to take their hook into death. They might have stayed a bit longer to help one to defy the white masses. I'll make some tea. Lily rose softly and went across to the fire. He had to cross a landing to a sort of little lavatory with a sink and a tap for water. The clerks peeped out at him from an adjoining office and nodded. He nodded and disappeared from their sight as quickly as possible, with his kettle. His dark eyes were quick, his dark hair was untidy, there was something silent and withheld about him. People could never approach him quite ordinarily. He put on the kettle, and quietly set cups and plates on a tray. The room was clean and cosy and pleasant. He did the cleaning himself, and was as efficient and inobtrusive a housewife as any woman. While the kettle boiled, he sat darning the socks which he had taken off Aaron's feet when the flautist arrived, and which he had washed. He preferred that no outsider should see him doing these things. Yet he preferred also to do them himself, so that he should be independent of outside aid. His face was dark and hollow. He seemed frail, sitting there in the London afternoon, darning the black woolen socks. His full brow was knitted slightly. There was a tension. At the same time there was an indomitable stillness about him, as it were in the atmosphere about him. His hands, though small, were not very thin. He bit off the wool as he finished his darn. As he was making the tea he saw Aaron rouse up in bed. "'I've been to sleep.' "'I feel better,' said the patient, turning round to look what the other man was doing. And the sight of the water steaming in a jet from the teapot seemed attractive. "'Yes,' said Lily. "'You slept for a good two hours.' "'I believe I have,' said Aaron. "'Would you like a little tea?' "'Aye, and a bit of toast. You're not supposed to have solid food. Let me take your temperature.' The temperature was down to a hundred, and Lily, in spite of the doctor, gave Aaron a piece of toast with his tea, and joining him not to mention it to the nurse. In the evening the two men talked. "'You do everything for yourself, then?' said Aaron. 
Yes, I prefer it. You like living all alone? I don't know about that. I never have lived alone. Tanny and I have been very much alone in various countries, but that's two, not one. You miss her, then? Yes, of course. I missed her horribly in the cottage when she'd first gone. I felt my heart was broken. But here, where we've never been together, I don't notice it so much. She'll come back, said Aaron. Yes, she'll come back, but I'd rather meet her abroad than here, and get on a different footing. Why? Oh, I don't know. There's something with marriage altogether, I think. Egoisme adieu. What's that mean? Egoisme adieu. Two people. One egoism. Marriage is a self-conscious, egoistic state, it seems to me. You've got no children? said Aaron. No. Tanny wants children badly. I don't. I'm thankful we have none. Why? I can't quite say. I think of them as a burden. Besides, there are such millions and billions of children in the world. And we know well enough what sort of millions and billions of people they'll grow up into. I don't want to add my quota to the mass. It's against my instinct. Aye, laughed Aaron with a curt acquiescence. Tanny's furious, but then when a woman has got children she thinks the world wags only for them and her, nothing else. The whole world wags for the sake of the children, and their sacred mother. Aye, that's damned true, said Aaron. And myself I'm sick of the children's stunt. Children are all right, so long as you just take them for what they are, young immature things like kittens and half-grown dogs, nuisances, sometimes very charming. But I'll be hanged if I can see anything high and holy about children. I should be sorry, too. It would be so bad for the children. Young brats, tiresome and amusing in turns. When they don't give themselves airs, said Aaron. Yes, indeed. Which they do half the time. Sacred children and sacred motherhood. I'm absolutely fed stiff by it. That's why I'm thankful I have no children. Tanny can't come it over me there. It's a fact. When a woman's got her children, by God, she's a bitch in the manger. You can starve while she sits on the hay. It's useful to keep her pups warm. Yes. Why, you know, Aaron turned excitedly in the bed, they look on a man as if he was nothing but an instrument to get and rear children. If you have anything to do with a woman, she thinks it's because you want to get children by her. And I'm damned if it is. I want my own pleasure, or nothing, and children be damned. Ah, women, they must be loved, at any price, said Lily. And if you just don't want to love them, and tell them so, what a crime. A crime, said Aaron. They make a criminal of you. Them and their children be cursed. Is my life given me for nothing but to get children, and work to bring them up? See them all in hell first. They'd better die while they're children, if childhood's all that important. I quite agree, said Lily. If childhood is more important than manhood, then why live to be a man at all? Why not remain an infant? Be damned and blasted to women and all their importances, cried Aaron. They want to get you under, and children is their chief weapon. Men have got to stand up to the fact that manhood is more than childhood, and then force women to admit it, said Lily. But the rotten whiners, they're all groveling before a baby's napkin and a woman's petticoat. It's a fact, said Aaron. But he glanced at Lily oddly, as if suspiciously, and Lily caught the look, but he continued. And if they think you try to stand on your legs and walk with the feet of manhood, why, there isn't a blooming father and lover among them but will do his best to get you down and suffocate you, 
either with a baby's napkin or a woman's petticoat. Lily's lips were curling. He was dark and bitter. "'Aye, it is like that,' said Aaron, rather subduedly. "'The man's spirit has gone out of the world. Men can't move an inch unless they can grovel humbly at the end of the journey.' "'No,' said Aaron, watching with keen, half-amused eyes. That's why marriage wants readjusting, or extending, to get men on to their own legs once more, and to give them the adventure again. But men won't stick together and fight for it, because once a woman has climbed up with her children, she'll find plenty of grovellers ready to support her, and suffocate any defiant spirit, and women will sacrifice eleven men, fathers, husbands, brothers, and lovers, for one baby, or for her own female self-conceit. She will that, said Aaron. And can you find two men to stick together without feeling criminal, and without cringing, and without betraying one another? You can't. One is sure to go fawning around some female. Then they both enjoy giving each other away, and doing a new grovel before a woman again." "'Aye,' said Aaron. After which Lily was silent. End of chapter 9. Part B.